Welcome to a nonfiction story cast about people in Seattle who built churches and how they did it. I'm Cindy Safranoff. I'm the author, and this is Dedication, building the Seattle branches of Mary Baker Eddy's church, a centennial story. Part 2, Episode 7, Radio Casts, 1930 In early 1930, after the initial collection for Sixth Church of Christ Scientist Seattle, the Joint Dedication Committee decided that going forward, they would spread out the contributions amongst all the debtor churches, alternating between Fourth, Fifth, Sixth, and Seventh Churches. They had successfully established a routine of monthly joint committee meetings in the Fourth Church boardroom and local meetings at each branch church, third Sunday collections for the building fund of the Target Church, and quarterly citywide mass meetings at Fourth Church. However, by August 1930, the momentum of the activity was in danger of diminishing or even stopping entirely because individual churches were reconsidering their participation. The importance of dedication was never questioned. The issue was money. All the churches were under financial strain, and joint dedication was not the only new joint activity adding to their operational expenses. In the fall of 1929, First Church had initiated a new jointly funded activity for radio casting, enabling the message of Christian science to be heard far beyond the walls of the local edifices. Christian scientists in Seattle had been looking into broadcasting technology as early as February 1925. After a visiting Christian science lecturer, Dr. John M. Tutt, suggested that the churches of the Northwest unite in erecting a broadcasting station somewhere between Seattle and Portland, cutting down the expense for each church, the churches to take turns in broadcasting the services. That ambitious plan never happened. But by April 1925, First Church was wired to broadcast its Sunday evening services and evening lectures through radio station KOMO. By 1930, the radio casts had become a joint activity, regularly announced at all area church services. With this new activity came new costs. At a joint board meeting in early 1930, the Seattle churches worked out an agreement to support the radio casts. First church would pay half the cost, and the other Seattle churches would pay the other half, according to membership size. There were several other new joint expenses around the same time. The Christian Science Publishing Society had recently asked branch churches to fund an advertising campaign to promote the biography, The Life of Mary Baker Eddy, by Sybil Wilbur. The book had long been available through Christian Science reading rooms, and now it was available for sale at local bookstores. The cost for large recurring display ads in the Seattle Times became a fee the churches paid based on the size of their membership. 
Another extra expense related to the Christian Science activity at the Fort Lewis military base near Tacoma. Started during the war, the building needed renovations, and the activity was running an operating deficit, so the outreach worker was requesting more money from the supporting churches. Furthermore, the Pacific Coast Benevolent Association near San Francisco, the new sanatorium at Arden Wood, was getting ready to open. Like the sanatorium at Chestnut Hill near Boston, the Arden Wood facility for Christian Science Nursing Care was operated under the direction of church officials in Boston. All Christian scientists were expected to contribute to the building fund. It belonged to the whole field, it was stated in the Christian Science Sentinel. The new facility, imposing in its proportions and picturesque in its surroundings, was intended to serve and be supported especially by those living in the western United States. The Seattle churches had been contributing to its building fund for years, and now in its final phase of construction, they were being asked to contribute more. As an example, in April, Fourth Church gave half of its third Sunday collection to the San Francisco nursing facility, which meant contributing half as much to joint dedication. Between all these activities, plus the Washington Committee on Publication, the Joint Lecture Committee, the prison ministry activity called Church Extension, and the three jointly maintained downtown Christian Science Reading Rooms, all the joint activity costs were starting to add up. On top of these expenses, even the church edifices that were only a few years old needed upgrades. Seventh Church needed to excavate under the north wall of their edifice to place new concrete footings to fix problems with settling. They had roof leaks to fix, and they were planning an interior decoration project. When the request came from Boston for more funds for the San Francisco Sanatorium, it triggered some rethinking of priorities. Seventh Church members had recently heard from its treasurer on the state of their church finances after a Wednesday church service. Following that meeting, a letter was sent to all members reminding them of their obligation, spelled out in their bylaws, of making regular financial contributions to the church as a matter of individual demonstration. In May, it was announced to the congregation that the collection needed to be at least three times as large as usual to cover our current obligations. Their June business meeting began with members singing a hymn with words by Mary Baker Eddy, Shepherd, show me how to go, and ended with a decision to put their redecoration project on hold. By September, Seventh Church was ready to take more drastic action. A united board presented this recommendation to its members. Inasmuch as the present financial condition of our church is such that we find it impossible to pay our necessary obligations, such as salaries, expense incident to the conduct of reading rooms and other local activities, and at the same time continue to participate in the monthly contributions to the Dedication Fund, Fort Lewis Activity, Church Extension Committee, 
and First Church Radio Fund, therefore be it resolved that after this date, September 8, 1930, we discontinue participation in these activities until such time as we can see our way to take up again any or all of these worthy works. The membership accepted its board's recommendation to withdraw from all joint activities. Their plan was to focus only on core church functions and paying down its own mortgage. Since they could barely afford to cover their own operating expenses, they could not afford to participate in any joint activities, especially not the most expensive of all, joint dedication. Seventh Church called a meeting of the local boards to discuss the joint dedication idea with their distinguished founding member, Charles A. Griffith, to preside. Seventh Church was not alone in having trouble justifying participation in joint dedication. Churches were making their mortgage payments late, borrowing from the bank to cover their regular operating expenses, and having to ask for more generous contributions on Sundays. Plus, they were increasingly being asked to provide emergency welfare to individual members who were struggling financially. Board members were looking for ways to cut operating costs. But it was when Fourth Church formally withdrew from joint dedication that the whole joint dedication effort seemed in danger of being put on hold and all the joint activities in jeopardy. Yet this stir of rethinking also stirred up new appreciation for the joint activities. It was around this time of reconsideration that evidence of the usefulness of the jointly funded radiocasts was shown to the whole church community. Radio listeners often sent letters of appreciation for broadcasts, sometimes sharing news of healings. Because of the radiocasts, a significant healing occurred in Seattle of profound impact. A newcomer to Seattle named Edwin Kirk Piper was struggling with almost complete paralysis. He was unable to walk or talk and had to be fed through a tube because he was unable to swallow liquids. His condition seemed hopeless. He was beyond help, even from one of the largest and best-known medical institutions in the world even with generous efforts by specialists, making use of the vast medical and surgical facilities at hand. For about 20 years, Mr. Piper had been working as an advertising manager for a destination healthcare facility called the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Michigan, a 30-acre complex with a large hospital, research facilities, and nurse training school. But because of his own worsening health, he and his wife had recently moved to Seattle to live with his parents. He was barely conscious one Sunday evening when his wife, in an adjoining room, turned on the radio and happened to tune in to the Christian Science broadcast. At first, the services meant very little to me, Piper later shared, as my thought was filled with nothing but fear, doubt, and despair. 
What first held his attention was the calm, strong, earnest voices of the readers. After he heard the church radiocast for several weeks, their words penetrated that dark wall of hopelessness. His physical condition began to steadily improve. He started reading the Bible with Mary Baker Eddy's writings in his own independent study. Eventually, Piper testified, what had seemed to be an incurable condition yielded to a spiritual awakening and a healing. I am now well, strong, and active, both mentally and physically, he wrote. This new devotee of Christian science concluded his testimony by quoting the words of Mary Baker Eddy. No power can withstand divine love. Piper's encounter with Christian science transformed not only his body, but his whole life. Not long after Piper published his story in the Christian Science Sentinel, he was advertising in the Seattle City Directory as a Christian Science practitioner. Initially, he shared an office on the 13th floor of the Seattle Stock Exchange Building on 2nd Avenue with Margaret Crawford, the second reader at 4th Church, who had just quit her teaching job at the University of Washington to devote all her time to the healing practice. By 1933, Piper moved his office to the Schaefer Building on the 8th floor, one floor below the jointly maintained reading room, near at least 16 other practitioners, and was approved for advertising in the Christian Science Journal directory as a full-time professional practitioner. Personal stories like Piper's, written in a letter, shared at a Wednesday testimony meeting, or published in the Christian Science periodicals, made it all worth it. All the daily prayer and spiritual study routinely done by the church members, the long hours of committee work, and the sustained efforts of church building. They even made it worth the ongoing effort of keeping the churches going financially. It was dramatic stories of healing like this that energized congregations and motivated members to give generously to church collections. From the Christian science viewpoint, the same higher power that healed Piper of a seemingly incurable paralysis could also heal the fear of financial lack that threatened to paralyze joint church activity. Piper's total transformation certainly proved the value of the radio casting was priceless. Immediately after Fourth Church withdrew from joint dedication, they reconsidered. The board, after a thorough investigation, recommended to the membership that we unite with the other churches and society of Seattle in dedicating the Christian science churches of this city. The members concurred, and so Fourth Church rejoined the joint dedication committee. The board sent thank you letters to all the churches that had contributed to its dedication fund, regardless of how small their contributions may have been. There was discussion amongst all the branch churches about expectations for contributions for joint dedication. 
they came to an understanding that each church should contribute at whatever level they felt able. They were no longer expected to give their entire third Sunday collection, but had flexibility. And so sometimes churches would contribute the entire collection, sometimes half, sometimes only what was above their normal collections, sometimes only what was above what they needed for their own expenses, and sometimes nothing at all. A guiding philosophy of inclusion was established so that all the branch churches could participate in meetings, regardless of their financial contributions. No church would ever be excluded. This policy was strongly recommended by Fourth Church. In one letter to the other churches on this issue, their corresponding secretary quoted a line from a hymn, Help to bear thy brother's burden, God will bear both it and thee. Contributions for joint dedication may have been significantly less in the fall of 1930 than in November 1929, but there was enough to dedicate Ninth Church in Lake Forest Park, which was similar to the Seahurst Park Church in smallness and remoteness. The Ninth Church dedication services were the third held within the first year of joint dedication. The Christian Science Movement was continuing to grow, with new branch churches forming worldwide. That year, at the annual meeting of the Mother Church, it was reported that 82 new churches and societies were organized that year. Five new college organizations were formed, and 56 Christian Science church buildings were dedicated that year, an average of one each week, an impressive record also reported in the Seattle Times. Christian Science Church growth continued in Seattle. The next number was added to the list of churches that year, the Christian Science Society at Green Lake, which had been meeting at the Green Lake Masonic Temple since 1927, incorporated as 11th Church of Christ Scientist Seattle. 11th Church united with the other Seattle churches in active support of joint dedication. 3rd Church had recommended that only dedicated churches contribute. But 11th Church disagreed. Although it appreciated the loving thought of 3rd Church, it contributed half of its 3rd Sunday collection, even though they wanted to build. The construction of their own edifice would have to wait until the other Seattle churches were dedicated. Yet, even as the resolve for joint dedication was renewed, the economy took another dramatic downward turn. Based on experience with previous economic depressions, it had been long enough since the start for investors to expect a recovery. The president of the American Bankers Association assured the American public that the end of the Depression was near and an upward climb would soon become normal again. But instead, in the fall of 1930, the entire banking system began to collapse. In November, a wave of bank failures rippled across the nation, later dubbed the Panic of 1930. By the end of the year, more than 1,300 banks had failed 
wiping out the life savings of their customers. Unemployment rates tripled that year. Three million Americans lost their jobs. Wages were down. In rural areas, because of severe drought condition that affected agricultural production in 30 states, many farmers lost their crops and were now struggling to feed their own families and keep their farms out of foreclosure. In a State of the Union address to Congress on December 2nd, President Herbert Hoover reminded Americans of the strength of the country, assured them the Depression was but temporary, and predicted that the United States would lead the world back to prosperity. President Hoover encouraged citizens to help the recovery by doing acts of neighborly charity, sharing their resources rather than hoarding, taking cooperative action, which required every individual to sustain faith and courage. Believing that government had a role to play in creating jobs through public works projects and in providing relief funds, the president asked Congress to appropriate hundreds of millions of dollars for such programs, including funding for the construction of a massive dam on the Colorado River that would create thousands of jobs, what would eventually be named Hoover Dam. Similar approaches as those encouraged by Hoover, individual charitable giving, cooperative actions, and large-scale infrastructure projects, to some degree would be followed by Christian scientists as the economic depression continued. The Committee for the Promotion of the Dedication of Christian Science Edifices in Seattle was planning another big event for December just a few days before Christmas, at Fourth Church. The Friday evening program, as with other such meetings, included three-minute inspirational talks on specific topics by Branch Church representatives. The representative from Seventh Church, Rubena V. Griffith, was assigned the topic, Unity. The Fourth Church representative, Mr. West, was assigned, Courage. Throughout the city, the branches of Mary Baker Eddy's church announced the upcoming meeting at their services, showing their newfound resolve of unity and courage. Thanks for listening to Dedication by me, Cindy Safranoff. All events and characters in this story are as true and accurate as the available sources. All opinions are mine. To support and learn more about this groundbreaking research project and read my writing, visit cindysafranoff.com.